Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Hi, and welcome to the 223rd episode of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. I'm Kyle with Stools and More, and I'm here with my co-host, Sean, of The Corner Workshop. Tonight, we're talking with Craig Thibodeau of CT Fine Furniture, a professional woodworking and a true artist in veneering, marquetry, etc. And we'll get into the etcs. So welcome, uh, Craig. It's uh, great to have you. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah. And if I mispronounce your name and say Greg, a good friend of mine in high school was a Greg uh, Thibodeau. No worries, I'll survive. Yeah. And it, it is Thibodeau, not Thibodeau, even though it's spelled with it a is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's a couple extra letters just for fun. Just for fun. Hey, just, I'm Polish. I get just it. Just for fun. <laughs> so, is your family from like uh, the Louisiana area? No, we're the other direction. We're okay. French Canadian, actually. French Canadian. Okay. Yep. Yep. Well, that makes sense there too. So, just, <laughs> I was just curious about that. But um, well, let's get started. So, what's in the shop? So, Sean, what are you up to? Uh, you know, as usual, not much. I'm I'm a busy guy, but uh, uh, tis the season. The tree is up, the lights are hung, uh, and uh, and actually, this past weekend, we uh, I, we literally carved out 30 minutes to go in the basement and do a thing. So I went over and started clearing off my bench, and I didn't make a dent in it, which is, is a testament to how bad it is. But uh, that's the extent of what I've done. It's pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could probably join you. I always get, uh, always have a lot I need to do, and it doesn't seem to get done. But mm-hmm. I have been working on the Windsor stools. I haven't really posted much on it since I posted a bunch on the two prototypes I built. But have been working on that. Um, I wanted to build some boxes for Christmas presents, and I picked out the wood, and I was going to resaw it. And yeah, the wood's still sitting there. I hadn't gotten resawed yet. <laughs> um, but I did uh, build some uh, laser bevel guides, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, Greg uh, Pennington um, had come up with these in a published article, I believe, in Pop Wood uh, Working Magazine, oh, I want to say a year, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a, a, it's a little contraption you mount a line laser to and it helps you set the angles when you're um, drilling holes for legs and windsor chairs or posts and um, you know a lot of people use the bevel squares and the mirrors and he came up with this uh, idea of using these line lasers and uh, so i figured now ah, i'll give it a shot so i built these and uh, i'm going to use them on um, this next tool i'm building to see how, how well I like those instead of using, you know, typical mirrors and bevel gauges. And um, a lot of people give me hell about it online. Well, one person, and that's uh, uh, Chris Williams of, um, you know, he builds the the uh, Welsh stick chairs. And uh, we've mm. struck up a good friendship since the class I took with him. So he's, uh, he's even against bevel square. So he's been giving me a hard time about using lasers. But, but anyway, so I built these things, and like I said, I'm going to use them, see how well I like them. Uh, you know, these were just thrown together, so if I want to do something further, uh, um, I'll probably uh, 
uh, spruce them up, or at least that was my idea. And then Greg today posted that he's gone from these little bases he built, which I basically copied, into using tripods. And I went, why didn't I think of that? Tripods would be much easier. Uh, mm-hmm. so we'll see if I like it. So I may, uh, move on to that, but that's really all I've been up to. Uh, this time of year is really hectic for me because not only is it the Christmas season, but, uh, last week was my wife's, uh, birthday. This week is our anniversary. So then I got Christmas coming up. So I'm not spending as much time down the shop as I should, but I think I'm spending time where I should be. If that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, your um, your bevel guides how, mm-hmm. are, are is it easy to adjust the yeah. angles as, as you? Because I mean, I'm envisioning, and I, th- I think I saw a couple of your posts, yeah. but it, it's basically you're taking these little line levels. Mm-hmm. Technology is awesome, right? That you can get these yeah. things cheap and, and accessible. But um, yeah. how easy is it to say change if you want a five degree different rake angle? Mm-hmm you know, in that projection? It should be pretty easy. Basically, it's a little stand that the uh, laser is mounted on. Uh, well, it's not really mounted on, but it's mounted on this little little piece of wood that then has a dowel into it, and the dowel goes through the stand. So i got a little pinch um, screw in there so I can loosen that up and, oh, okay. and adjust it and then tighten it down so it should stay locked on. Um, so like I said, I'm going to use it and see if I like it. And then if I do, um, it should be good. The, the, the thing about it that I think is intriguing is you get instant feedback, whether you're moving, um, out of the planes you're trying to stay in, cause you're trying to stay in, uh, uh, 90 degrees to your sight line and then at your angle, uh, that you have on that sight line. So this so you're looking at basically a 90-degree angle and then, say, a 13-degree angle that's perpendicular to that. And mm. so I think with the lasers, it'll give you instant feedback instead of having to, uh, especially when you're reaming a hole, turn your reamer a couple of times and then put the bevel up, make sure you're you know still in line, and then you go, nope, I need to go up and to the left. And you know, So I think it'll give you some more instant feedback. And everyone seemed that uses that method seems to like it but you hmm. know it is putting lasers on woodworking so you know you get a lot of shit for it <laughs> i'm sure of it <laughs> yeah I'm sure of it. <laughs> i was just recently watching uh, a cnc milling video because it's just yeah. an interest of mine and the uh subject of a sign block came up mm-hmm. and it's it's an alignment thing it's you know how, yeah. do, how do you mill something off an angle and i i never really thought of it in depth but but you know the, it's said in there that I mean the the you can know everything, but it, it all sh- comes down to the fact that if the base isn't dead flat that you're referencing off of, except I mean in your chair case mm-hmm. it doesn't actually matter I guess it's all it's all relative, but in like in the milling thing like you can have all the fine set things you can have your rise just right. But if you're if you've got a shim under one leg, it's going to be totally you know cattywampus yeah, compared that's, to what it's supposed to be. Yeah, and that's what you have to do is basically um, you know you got to reference off uh, the work surface. So you know when you're you know basically you you put up a, a square or a bevel uh, board that has all the angles on it, including ninety degrees, and you'd put that on top of your seat. For drilling and reaming and reference off that so oh okay so you make sure you you keep it that way because i was even 
going to go a bit further. And if this actually works, I was going to put a one of those Wixley um, bevel angles oh, on the side of it yep. to even yep. make it to even give myself some uh, you know more heartache online. So. Anyway, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, you know, like I said, I'll try it out and see how I like it. If not, uh, the mirrors and bevels have never let me down either. But there you go. with that, Craig, what are you working on? Uh, a couple different things. I just finished my most recent mechanically moving cabinet and dropped that off at the finisher last week. So I'm actually mm. doing a variety of sort of shop improvements this week. I posted uh, yesterday and the day before I was doing uh, building a little benchcrafted high vice yeah uh get mm-hmm. the work pieces off the bench another 10 inches or so mm-hmm. uh and that thing is fantastic i've used it a little bit today and it, it's amazing how well it holds pieces for being as small as it is mm-hmm. you know if you've got a stable bench i can move it around the shop now and put it on different benches and essentially take the take the vice to the work instead of the other way around which is kind of nice sure yeah, yeah, I saw your post on that, and yeah, it looked really, really sturdy too. And uh, everyone I know that's that's used one has really raved about it. So um, I'm a little bit jealous. I may have to, you know, give Benchcraft some more money. <laughs> well, you know, they make a good product, so it's oh, hard to complain. Yeah, excellent product. You know, I've got their crisscross vice on my workbench, and that went through about a year and a half ago. The flood I had in my shop, and it was two feet underwater for a couple of days, and Mm-hmm. I think I sprayed a little WD-40 on it, and it went right back to work, and I haven't touched it since. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It's surprising how well. Even the screw was underwater and little WD-40 and just went right back to working just the way it was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so I've always always admired what they do. I've got their Moxon hardware for a Moxon vice that I put oh, yeah. together. And just fantastic quality all around. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, now you've moved shops since the flood, right? I did. About yeah. a year and a half ago, I moved. Uh, I was out of that shop about a month after the flood happened, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because of I the flood? To, or was it, the yeah, flood? I, yeah, I had been ready to move for quite a while, mm-hmm. but the flood was a good kick in the pants to just go ahead and do it. Um, it was a, you know, the flood was caused by a city water main break, so the city oh. took care of moving everything. It was just a matter of packing and getting stuff dried, and they, they had a whole crew in there doing the you know, drying with giant humidifiers and they had people in wiping stuff down and cleaning and disinfecting everything. They they did an amazing job, actually. I think we had something like 75 people working on cleaning up. It was a, it was kind of a cooperative size shop. It was about 13,000 square feet and there were about 75 people doing cleanup work on the flood. So we got really, really lucky that it was a, you know, it was a city sort of caused event because they had been working on the water main the day before and then it broke at like five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, wow. I can't imagine, you know, I, we talked about it and if, if it had been something like rain that caused it where we wouldn't have had the city to come in and clean it, you, you know, you almost kind of walk away from the shop because yeah. it was, we essentially had a, you know, it's like a walkout basement industrial space, but it has a, about a three foot concrete berm on it. So it just filled with water. Ooh. So it was two feet of water for about three days that had to be pumped out. I can't remember what the total number of gallons was, but it was, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water that had to be pumped out. And it took about three days to get it all out. And then it was, you know, the layer of sludge underneath that had to be cleaned up and sewage and, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's but it got me in a new shop, which I love. The, mm-hmm. the environment's better. I basically get left alone all day long. There's no people there. There's no, you know, landlord's great. And I can just go in and focus on my work, which is what I'd been wanting to do for a long time is find a, 
essentially a quiet space to work. And this this has worked out great. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I won't mention my flood because I think it's a drinking game on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the fourth time the shop had flooded. That one, Ooh, the other. Oh my! Had, the one before that was about six months earlier, but it was only about an inch of water, uh-huh. and it was from rain. And then we'd had you know the sewage leak that had dripped onto the workbench and you know stuff like that because we were in essentially a basement. Yeah. industrial space you know 13 foot ceilings but it was still the basement of the building above so anything that happened up there just kind of flowed down mm-hmm. and wow. i had all kinds of water and sewer pipes going through my particular shop space so yeah. the new space can't flood barring you know rising tides of like 100 feet or something like that yeah <laughs> it should be safe in this new space no okay. floods okay so you're in san diego so any fire problems mudslides i guess no. earthquake could be a possibility should be fine i'm actually out just a bit east of san diego now i'm in el cajon yeah. which is it's still san diego but it's it's a little warmer and it's a little drier yeah uh, but it's also a little cheaper mm-hmm. just because it's not <laughs> my little space was down in little italy which is basically downtown Oh, I space. love Little Italy. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and and yeah. Little Italy has grown dramatically in the past four or five years, and it's just filled with restaurants and breweries mm. and wine bars. So there were a number of reasons to move, parking, the crowds. Just It was getting difficult to just get into the shop. Mm-hmm. So it was perfect timing to go somewhere else where now you can park right in front of your shop instead of parking a mile away and walking in every day. You know, it, it's just so much more convenient. Yeah, yeah. Well, you live in a great part of the world. I remember the first time years ago I went to uh, San Diego and, uh, you know, coming from Texas, I got off the plane and went, wow, they have air conditioning outside. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yeah. It probably feels like that, I imagine. Exactly, exactly. It's great. So, yeah, that's that's a fantastic area. It's cold now. It was like 60 degrees today. It's horrible. Oh, my God. Arctic winter. (laughs) Both of you. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it about <laughs> sixty here too. So to contrast that, I'll say it was. It felt warm today. It was about thirty-seven. So there. Yeah. You have snow on the ground yet, or? <laughs> yeah, it's come and it's kind of melted away a little. You know, except in shady spots now. But we're right in that time. The Midwest, especially where we are, right in the knuckle of Lake Erie, oh, where yeah. it, it, it can it can you know change thirty degrees in a in a day. So. Really cold where you are, isn't it? Yeah, Some, but sometimes really cold means negative ten, and sometimes really cold means thirty, and it's there's a vast difference between year to year. No, oh, well. no zero consistency. In my lifetime, it's it's never been the same. Hmm. Yeah, which that's that's <laughs> what we pay for here in San Diego is yeah sunny weather. That's why it costs so much to live here. Yeah, no, for sure. It's and it's we are envious of those, you know, except. <laughs> Uh, we do get four seasons, which is I like. My wife doesn't like it, but I like it. We just get, get them one sunny. Yeah, all the time. All the time. <laughs> we had rain last week. It was, I think, we had a day or two of rain, and that's pretty much it for the winter. Oh my gosh! And it was seventy degrees and sunny the next day, mm. and it has been since then. <laughs> but the cost of living here is a little bit. It's a little bit higher than the Midwest. Yeah, sure. just a tad. Just a tad. Just a little bit. Can you pay for it? There's, there's mm. trade-offs. Yeah, well, you probably you pay for you know heating and cooling and everything mm-hmm. else in a way mm-hmm. that we don't. Yeah. Now, did you grow right. up in San Diego area? No, I grew up in uh, Northern California, up okay. near Redding. So 
we had actually had seasons up there and got snow mm. and it was, you know, <laughs> I think the hottest it ever got in the summer was 120 or so. So we had some distinct change of temperature up there. Sure. Yeah, that's that's hot. No, anyway. but I've been in San Diego for 25 years now. So. Oh, OK. Well, good. Talking about about drinking games, bringing up weather on the podcast. That's exactly. <laughs> hey. <laughs> it's buried everywhere. It is. It is. So, Kyle, before we get into uh, talking uh, about Craig in detail, uh, what piqued your interest? I see you got a little thing in here in the notes. Yes, yes. Um, well, before we uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, Craig's great book with Taunton Press, mm-hmm. um, we'll pump up Fine Woodworking Live. So, mm-hmm. um, Lost Art Press, uh, Chris Swartz, uh, published a uh, blog post and uh, let loose that he will be one of the demonstrators at Fine Woodworking Live, along with uh, uh, Christian uh, Bexfort, uh, Matt Pickford, uh, Peter Galbert again, one of my uh, all-time faves, and uh, Nancy Hiller, another great uh a woodworker. So, um, I, they haven't announced any more. I mean, uh, Chris just kind of let that slip. So we're waiting to see, <laughs> see, um, see what comes out and who actually is going to be presenting a fun woodworking live. I, I'd love to know the, uh, and you know Ben or somebody with fine wood could could give us the details. But yeah. I'm sure the Schwar- the Schwarzening happened. Um, yeah. I, I'd be surprised if they didn't sell out just because he mentioned that. Well, I don't. Tickets haven't gone on sale yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, as soon as he mentioned that, I I clicked over there and just to make sure that uh, that they hadn't started selling out yet. Um, but uh, no, they haven't. And I'm clicking over there now just to make sure nothing has changed in the last couple of days, and it does not look like it. When is Fun Working Live? It's end, end of April. Yeah, the, yeah. Last, the last weekend in April. Yeah, April 26th and 28th of 2019. So that answers my next question, since Craig didn't know um, when <laughs> yeah. it was. Just, just trying to feed it in there. Just trying to see if he was going to be there. but uh, No, no, that invite didn't come. We talked about it. When Asa was uh, running the magazine way back, we had talked about it a little bit. Um, I think that was right after their first one, but... Mm-hmm. Teaching is not something I've decided to do yet. Mm-hmm. Um, one day, maybe. I'm leaving it open-ended at the moment, but I, I've been saying no for quite a while to teaching offers. It, it just doesn't, for me at least, Yeah, uh, it doesn't really honestly pay enough to take time out of the shop and then also the time it would take me, because I haven't taught before, to develop a lesson plan and all the preparation for it. It just doesn't really make it it doesn't work financially at the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was teaching more regularly, like Paul Schirsch, who I studied with uh, years ago for marketry, he has a whole developed lesson plan. He's been teaching for 20 years, I think, now. It's much easier for him to just jump on a plane and go and teach a class he's taught 100 times already. Mm-hmm. But just starting sure. out, the amount, of, the amount of initial work you'd have to put in to, to develop a reasonable lesson plan and really get up to speed, it, it's just hard to commit to that at the moment. Oh, Maybe yeah. one day, though. Yeah, yeah it's one of those things that if once you do get the opportunity or someone pushes you to finally, you know, kind of forces your hand to do it and you do develop that, then you're in the position where you can repeat it. 
yeah you know, and which is i mean could be enjoyable could be fun but. yeah and i guess i was i jumped the gun there and i assumed you meant going there to teach as opposed to going there to learn which would also be a lot of fun but <laughs> no for sure but I that's even that's even more expensive if you're not making yeah, money yeah. to go Yeah, well, you're there. not making any money that way. But <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to either way, unfortunately. I, I would have loved to have taken some of the classes they had in the past, um, but just it's a time a time commitment for me, and I don't have the time in my schedule. I'm booked out work-wise until probably the beginning of 2020, so there's not a lot of time I have to take off at the moment. Wow. Yeah. And that's One a, day. That's a good problem to have as a... You know, yeah. professional. You know, make craftsman maker. I yeah, well, that's again, like that's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely the goal to always be busy. Um, sure, you know, to not have somebody call up and say, "Can you build me something for Christmas in two weeks?" And I have time to do it. That would be a bad thing. <laughs> um, a lot of that is actually one very large project that's probably going to take between six and nine months of next year. So is this um, another uh, puzzle? Uh, it is. Yeah. This. This yeah. is far beyond the complexity of pieces I've done in the past, many, many times more complex, actually. Really? Um, and it's a puzzle-slash-mechanical desk, kind of 18th century in style, very very much like some of the um, the Röntgen desks mm-hmm. from that century, or uh, Biedermeier even in style, kind of a mix of the two, but very heavy on ornamentation um, and lots of complicated and sort of new puzzles that haven't been seen before. I collaborate on these puzzle pieces with a professional puzzle maker, Robert Yarger. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been going back and forth on this for a couple months now, and there's there's a lot going into this particular piece. It's going to be pretty spectacular when it's all done. But it's wow. going to take probably between six and nine months to build. Well, that, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that that is very interesting. So yeah, I've heard you talk about, and I've seen senior. I mean, you know, it's a great honor to have you on our podcast. Just some of the work that you've done, truly a true artist. And and uh, now that I guess what probably for the past six seven years, you've started to get into the puzzle uh, furniture or the mechanical furniture. Yeah, the me- the mechanical yeah. stuff has been yeah. six or seven years. Puzzles is the last maybe three or so, but it, mm. it seems to be the majority of my work now. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much everything I've done for the past year, except for like the Mother Pearl desk, has been puzzle and mechanical furniture. And the next year's worth of work is basically the same. Yeah, it's all it's all going to be some sort of mechanical or puzzle oriented thing. Yeah, well, that kind of ties into my to my first question about. Your background now, you have you do have a degree in mechanical engineering, so I'm sure that uh, lends its way into to, to making these things and devising the mechanisms to make everything work. But but tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you know, uh, you did get a degree in mechanical engineering, but um, how, how has that gone forward into your woodworking? It it really hasn't, to be honest with you. Really? My wife and I were talking about that last night, and I was suggesting that it would have been a better idea to take um, something in graphic arts or mm-hmm. design mm-hmm. even. Um, I studied mechanical engineering, but nothing that I really learned in school applies to what I'm doing now, other than some of the 3D modeling, because I do all of my designs in SolidWorks, so they're all done in CAD. Mm-hmm. Pretty mm-hmm. much 100% of the design is done in CAD. But the majority of the stuff I learned in college just doesn't apply to what I'm doing now. Um, I did product design when I came out of school doing flashlights and hand tools and stuff like that. So the design side was there, mm-hmm. but it, it's not really the same in scope or in scale as what I'm doing now. Um, hmm. it, it doesn't necessarily 
flow from one to the other very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had been building furniture for a long time before that while I was going to college, and it just sort of kept growing and growing. So it's, it made sense to move from one into the other. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so what you learned in school, does anything about, well, it's probably not something you learned in school. It's probably something that's innate is just your uh, problem solving skills. Cause I imagine that takes up most of your time is solving these, these problems and how to make a mechanism that'll do what you want to do. And most of your mechanisms that I've seen actually trigger something else in the piece, you know, so it's you know, yeah. a cascading effect. Yeah. yeah. Typically, um, yeah. Yeah, some of that came from learning in school. I, I suppose more, it, you know, like everybody says about college, it taught you how to learn. So mm-hmm. it, you learn how to learn by going to college. You don't necessarily learn the specific things you're going to need on a job, but you can figure out how to go find them now. A lot of the mechanisms I'm making now are, there is definitely some trial and error involved, but uh, the more I make, the better I'm getting at them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pieces are, they're kind of intended to look like furniture first, although some of them are, you know, they're sized and styled based on what the client wants or the types of puzzles. But the idea is to have them look like a piece of furniture first, and then they also have all these other features on them. Right. And that that's developing more and more. Like this desk is going to look like a, a really authentic 18th century desk. It's not going to look like a puzzle. It's not going to look like anything that was built in this time period. It's mm-hmm. It's intended to look like it's from that period of time. Um, and that, that's not necessarily something I think you could learn in college, even the mechanical right. stuff. I, I don't think there are any schools that teach that kind of information, mechanical design. Um, there are a couple that teach like a semester class on practical design or mechanical design or mechanisms, but not many that take it far enough that you could actually use that information in the future. Yeah. Now, these mechanisms that you use, are they done in metal, or are they done in wood, or combination, or? Combination. Okay. Yep. I work with a local CNC machinist for metal pieces that I need that I can't make in the shop. I have pretty limited metalworking skills. I can mm-hmm. drill holes. I can file, and that's pretty much the limit of my <laughs> metalworking skills. I'd yeah. love to know how to machine. It would make things so much faster. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, a lot of them are metal primarily for strength. Um, you know, if you've got, you know, a two foot long lever arm, mm-hmm. it, it just would take so much more space to have a wooden piece in there where you can put a, you know, a half inch square brass rod. Yeah. Plus, I imagine you get a lot better control with a metal piece than a wooden piece. You don't have to take into account any slop or movement or anything of that nature. It's pretty locked in. Yeah. And it kind of yeah. goes with the veneering as well. It's the same mm-hmm. sort of thing. Right. Limiting it's limiting any variables, wood mm-hmm. movement or friction as much as possible by using metal components where you can and veneer to keep things stable. Mm-hmm. Now, do you mm-hmm. use any CNC in your woodworking? I don't at the moment. Okay. I've been pondering getting a laser, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But that would be more for um, some marquetry pieces and then mm-hmm. potentially some engraving, but I just have yeah, yeah, you mentioned that in your book about uh, laser cut and had a couple of examples in there of some some laser cut yeah. Uh, yeah. marquetry pieces. Yeah, And the, I have done laser marquetry in the past, and actually the person in the book, Christy Oates, is the one that's done the laser marquetry for me because that's her specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's busy, and she's back east now, so it's it's a challenge to coordinate things time-wise. That's why I've consider bringing a laser into the shop and getting set up. But one thing I don't do is Adobe Illustrator. I've never learned how to use it. And that's kind of a requirement (laughs) just because of the vector graphics and being able to move the laser curve. Um, And that's really the only thing holding me up is however long it would take to learn how to use Illustrator. 
Ah, understood. Which understood. I, which I think is a long time. <laughs> Could I be. Mean, you Could never be. know. You know, I mean, if you're already doing design in SolidWorks, I mean, Illustrator's another basically a it's it's visual CAD, but it's a it's a manipulation tool. I mean, you can you can learn it. Oh yeah, anybody can learn it. Just got to commit. That's uh, yeah, and you know, is do you do you get any flack from the traditionalists when you talk about lasers like that? When oh no, you should be doing it. You know, any detail work like that should be cut in a Chevrolet, and you know. <laughs> No, there's there's really only one traditionalist that gives me a hard time here in town. Uh, Patrick Edwards. Yeah, and, yes. and it's yes. it's half jesting, but half really not. I yeah. think my half is jesting. His half is very seriously giving me a hard time. Mm. Um, but it's not necessarily for the laser scroll saw. It's for Gorilla Glue. Oh sure. Oh yeah. So yeah polyurethane yeah. glue instead of high glue for everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 yeah. 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 Is that a uh, a case where, like, hey, you know, I can complete pieces just that much faster with the same uh, quality, you know? I think that would be his argument, is that the Gorilla Glue makes it not the same amount of quality because you can't take it apart. You can't reverse it, okay. Yeah, we we do completely different types of work, really, yeah. and that, that's really what it is. It, it's not a disagreement in terms of how I work or the work I do. It's just he works in an antique environment and I don't, I work with modern veneers, modern glues, modern substrates. And it would be difficult. I think for somebody that doesn't have his 40 years of experience to step in and start building the kind of pieces he builds with that kind of complexity and be able to sell them. Even, I mean, the complexity in the marketry and the, the whole process of hand building those pieces with a high glue and everything else it would be challenging for somebody else to come in and start doing that kind of work and develop a market for it. Mm-hmm. So did you did you build uh, simpler even before veneering? Were you were you building furniture? Oh uh, yeah. Okay, and and so where like how did that progress from embellishment or I mean really detailed beautiful veneering that you do, and then it, you know then the next step to let's make it mechanical inside. Let's let's do you know something that isn't even visible on the outside. Like, right. How did that develop over time? I think I started the way a lot of woodworkers did by reading the Kranov books and by reading Nakashima's books. So the majority of my initial work was slab tables or an attempt to replicate Kranov's way, James Kranov's way of working, more hand tools, more attention to fine details. And I, I did that for a long time, and the veneer just sort of slowly worked its way in. I, I had a buddy locally where I was able to get veneer for pretty cheap, so I could experiment a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, from the beginning, it opened up a lot of opportunities in terms of figure and types of woods, that things that just aren't available in solid wood. And that, that became apparent very quickly, that if I wanted to build pieces with really spectacular-looking wood or heavy figure, contrasting or not with the, you know, the perimeter wood, you, you'd have to go to veneer because you either couldn't afford to buy it in solid wood or it just wasn't available. You know, Palmel Sapele, Macassar Ebony, things like that that just – they're just so expensive in solid wood. It, it's sort of a waste to use them as solid wood. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it was it was a kind of an easy decision to go to veneer, mostly so I could kind of start playing with figured woods and grain and pattern and parquetry and and that kind of led into the marquetry as well, which is definitely a veneer only sort of thing. Um, so it just kind of expanded bit by bit until at the end I'm doing mostly veneer work. 
Still has yeah. solid woodwork mixed into it, but the majority of what you see is veneer. Yeah. Well, you, well, your new book, you know, we want to mention that right off the top by Totten and uh, published by Totten. It's called The Craft of Veneering, but I think the uh, subtitle is even more accurate, A Complete Guide from Basic to Advanced. And, you know, in in my reading of your book, I mean, that's exactly what it is. You go from everything from uh, how veneer is actually made to all the processes in there. But one of the things you do talk about is all the different types of substrates and glues involved. So you do go through, hey, here's how you do, um, you know, high glue as far as, you know, hammer veneering with the high glue and and uh, I, I just think it's remarkable. So um, tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, when, when I guess uh, Taunton approached you about doing a book, uh, what went through your mind about, okay, if I'm going to talk about the craft of veneering, um, what are all the things that I want to put into that book? Well, it actually started again with mm-hmm. Asa. Christiana okay. from Fine Woodworking, mm-hmm. he and I had talked about a book in the past, and he suggested that I get in touch with the editor at Taunton Books. And they seemed very interested in a veneering book and very interested in making something that was more of a complete guide. Mm-hmm. So somebody with no experience would be able to pick it up and actually learn a little bit of veneering. And somebody with a lot of experience would be able to pick it up and learn some advanced technique that maybe they haven't messed with, parquetry, marquetry, curve veneering, things like that. So the the goal from the beginning was definitely to make a book that would appeal to a very wide audience and cover as many questions really as I could cram in there in terms of glue and substrates, I've used all of those glues for veneering in the past. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to show, okay, if, if you have a, a hot glue pot, here's how you can do some veneering. If you have epoxy, here's how you can do f- some veneering. If all you have is MDF, you can still veneer. If you have solid wood, you can still veneer. There's the limitation wasn't going to be the lack of knowing how to use a material or a glue it was going to be, you know, whether or not you really wanted to get into veneering. Mm-hmm. So it starts off, like you'd said, it starts off very, very basic. Here's how veneer is made. Here's how they cut logs. Some of the variety that's available in veneer. And then it just goes right into you have a piece of veneer and what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. How do you glue it onto something? How do you sand it? How do you do all of the steps necessary to turn it into a project, essentially? So each of the chapters in the book beyond the first one is essentially a project, and each project demonstrates either a different substrate or a different glue, so you can see how those are used in an actual project as opposed to just, you know, here's how you spread hide glue. It it shows step-by-step how you use hide glue, how you prep it, and the same thing with polyurethane and epoxy and tight bond and PVA. Um, It goes through Mm -hmm. step-by-step how you use each one of those things on different substrates to do a finished veneer job. Yeah. And then from from there, it expands into more complex projects like marquetry and parquetry and how to do waterfall veneering and how to do curved edging and curved doors. It, it just takes you all the way through, no matter what project you'd want to work on with veneer, there's probably some information in there that would help. You know, No matter what level you're at, if you want to do art deco veneering that's very complex and tedious, there's information that'll help. The waterfall veneering is very popular. It's very, very difficult to do properly Mm -hmm. Um, and it just goes step by step how you line up the grain how you make it flow from piece to piece and that's something that somebody could pick up 
just by reading that one chapter if they're not interested in the rest of the book. Yeah, I mean, that's what just blew me away with the book is you went into like all the details, you know, you know, I am what I do. I haven't uh, done a lot of veneering, only a, only a little bit on one project, but I've always been interested in it. And reading the book, I went straight to some of the things I thought, okay, how do you do the edging and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and all of that. And then I went, oh, well, that's interesting. And then I saw another thing on doing the Parker tree and I read a little bit about that and then went, all right, stop. Let's go back to the first chapter and let's go through this piece <laughs> by piece, chapter by chapter. But I mean, you, you are right. Uh, from anybody that's uh, uh, a beginning person like myself to somebody that's advanced, I think they could uh, uh, really do some stuff. Because I mean, you did some stuff. Um, uh, a little chapter about how you create. Uh, oh. Uh, probably without picking up your book, I'm going to lose it, but the diagonal, uh, the oh, diamond park, di- diamond, uh, Parker tree and, yep, and herring bones and things yeah, like that. I just thought that was just fascinating. Um, you know, I always wondered how that was done and you, you lay it out right there and it's very simple and easy to follow. So, I mean, kudos to you for doing that. And, you know, your, your book is, is, I don't, I don't want to say it's as good as your, uh, projects, but it's damn close. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, the the idea was to, to present the information mm-hmm. in a way that even the complicated techniques, it's mm-hmm. sort of step by step. You, you could walk through it. If you've never done marquetry before, there's enough information in there for you to go and cut some marquetry if you have mm-hmm. a scroll saw or, you know, another tool that you could use. You can even use a scalpel to cut marquetry, a utility knife. There's there's enough information in there to show how to do it from a very basic level so that, you know, the the goal was to not have the it's too complicated. I can't do it right from the start. It's to make it, okay, look, here's a pretty picture of somebody doing marquetry, but here's, here's the simple step-by-step of how it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I like how it, it progresses through and I mean, not, not to mention the gallery of examples that you've got sprinkled throughout the, the entire book, but you know, you go through book matching and, and four-way book matching and then into radial matching and and uh, then into sand shading. And, and, I mean, there's so many things you can do with veneer uh, yeah. to, to embellish, to completely cover, to, to look at. I, I actually I thumbed through this with um, my son just before recording tonight, and I said, you know, look at this. I mean, that, that, that would is not completely through that entire project. It's, it's the skin over it, but look what it does. Look at the vertical lines you made on that piece there, like, uh, and the chessboard that uh, I forget what chapter that's in, but um, as it, or maybe that was even in your Instagram, I can't remember, but it was like as it as it curves up and that grain continues on, it gives a look that that can do so much visually uh, that's remarkable. And and I mean, as Kyle's already said, you know, you you step through it and each, or you said each chapter is like. If you if you're already there and you're just looking for that one little thing, this it's it's all there for you. It's fantastic. Yeah. And if if you're just starting and you read through chapter one and two and you go, okay, that's enough. You just go back and read through chapter one and two again. You don't have to keep going. Mm-hmm. But it, but it does definitely grow in complexity the farther in you get. Mm-hmm. But you know most of those pieces that are in the gallery. That was that was kind of the second thing I wanted to do is highlight a variety of woodworkers whose work I really admire some of which don't get a lot of attention, especially in the marketry chapter. Most of those guys, the really complex sort of pictorial marketry, those guys are all in the UK and they just don't get the kind of 
publicity and visibility that we get here. So this was an opportunity to kind of showcase some of those people. So each chapter, in addition to showing step-by-step how to do something, has a selection of images of work from a variety of makers that illustrates that particular technique being used on a variety of pieces of furniture. So there's a variety of parquetry furniture in there, not just mine. There's half a dozen other pieces from different people that show how to use diamonds and herringbones and mm-hmm. checkerboards and all different types of decorative patterns in case there's a style that appeals to you. Yeah. But there's enough information in there to be able to build the majority of the pieces that are shown in the gallery sections as well. Yeah, yeah one, that, of, one of the things that really interests me in the book, um, of course, I do a lot of steam bending, but uh, was your uh, using veneer for the bent laminations. And uh, mm-hmm. that was very interesting for, for me and uh, makes me want to go get a vacuum press. Well, and I don't, <laughs> I, I don't do any steam bending, so I do all of my <laughs> yeah. bent laminations with veneer. I, I did a job for a yacht renovation last year, and we were doing bent laminated curved window frames that were essentially sort of a compound curve they had to twist as they went in and they were made up of i can't remember but something like 50 or 60 layers of veneer Mm. mahogany veneer just straight grained and when they were done and shaped it looked like a solid piece of mahogany Mm. but just to get around these sharp corners it had to be veneer you couldn't have done it in steam bent wood but i also don't do any steam bending in the shop i'd like to but i don't yeah now what type of uh you know in your general work that you do using veneer, are you using primarily commercial veneer? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I'll use resawn veneer for some pieces, like this latest mechanical cabinet, um, the one in Wenge. That's made of commercial redwood lace burl for the majority of the panels, and but the Wenge is a combination of solid and resawn, about eighty thousandths thick Wenge veneer to get that kind of waterfall look. Um, it's all cut from the same board. I have a friend that does resawing for me, so I cut out all the leg parts that I need, and then he slices it up, and I get perfectly sliced, sanded veneer ready to be glued down, but it's thick enough that I can shape it and edge it and not have to worry about commercial veneer and its delicate corner edges mm-hmm. on a piece that's going to be bumped into a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, because it, it seems like, you know, especially when you do some of the some of those pieces – with commercial veneer, it seems like they're very prone to damage, like some of, I guess, um, well, I think one of the uh, pieces that you're most famous for is the uh, the Art Deco uh, chess uh, table, chessboard table. Yeah, pretty much anything yeah. Art Deco is yeah. completely covered in veneer. Yeah. So, there, I mean, it has solid wood underneath it, but... All of the edges are veneer up against veneer, so they're they're just pieces that have to be fairly well taken care of, and then that, mm-hmm. that kind of goes along with some of the finishes on those pieces. They're most of them are full fill conversion varnish finishes or polished finishes, so they need to be taken care of anyways because they're very delicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus some of the puzzle stuff I'm doing, these mechanical puzzle cabinets, they're veneer panels, but they're all surrounded in solid wood frames, legs, things like that, because they're going to get handled a lot. So right. the veneer is not in a place where it could get damaged very easily. You'd have to try to damage it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, tell us about any of the historical pieces. Have you gone out there and studied some of those that were done you know, way back in the uh, 17th, 18th century? I've certainly looked at a lot of pictures. That's about <laughs> as close as I've gotten to any of them, though. I would love to have gone yeah. to the uh, the Metropolitan Show on the Röntgen work a couple of years ago. I think it was 2013. Um, 
But no, most of it's through pictures and online research, just looking and looking and searching for, you know, this one piece that you've seen somewhere, but you can't remember where you saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's one picture of it online somewhere. Um, but like this desk that we're doing, there was a ton of research involved in just coming up with a variety of options for the client to show them different pieces from 17th, 18th century and the different styles and what their interest level was in different ones. So we presented a whole variety of pieces and went through them and different details on each one so that the client could see sort of a development of the style from that 100-year period. Um, but that's that's mostly spent is time spent online. A lot of these pieces are overseas. A lot of the Röntgen pieces are overseas. They're in Germany. There's, I mean, there's a German Röntgen museum somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not easily accessible if you're not in Germany. Sure. Sure. Well, it sounds like a road trip. <laughs> I just don't like to travel. I just want to stay home and work in my shop. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, 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 so the book has been fantastic. So what was, I mean, I'm sure it was a labor of love, but I'm sure it was a labor to, to put this in, in, uh, and get this into Taunton's uh, uh, eager hands to get them to publish that. So tell us a little bit about what you went through to actually uh, develop the book and, uh, and get everything done. And, you know, I mean, you know, there is a lot of information in here, but there's a lot of great photographs too. And uh, just want a little bit about, you know, the writing of the book and uh, how you got that uh, done. And Sure. Well, the Taunton Press is pretty tight on their schedule, so mm-hmm. I had nine months from when we signed a contract to deliver all the writing and all the photographs. Wow. So it's a little faster than one chapter a month, which was kind of about the speed I was going. Um, I did shoot all the pictures myself, except for a lot of the finished pieces. Those were submitted by other artists or from my photographer who shoots pictures of my furniture. Um, but all of the process photos I shot myself, I, I got lucky. My photographer is fantastic and he's here in town and he came and helped me set up for a lot of the pictures. So it, it made it much easier to get the lighting correct, having him stop by and double check things and shift a light and check the camera. He let me borrow all of his camera gear as well. So it, it made that process much easier. I don't know that I would have been able to take the pictures without his help, actually. Um, but the writing, I essentially kind of start writing sort of rough draft format i suppose we, we present an outline to the to the publisher just to get approval it has to be a, essentially a complete outline that you sort of flesh out a little bit so each chapter is fleshed out in maybe 10 or 20 bullet points but you need a full outline of the entire book to present so mm-hmm. they can go through all of their contract negotiations and approvals and then we just sort of started a chapter one and i kind of got a layout of the book in my head as what i wanted to talk about and just kind of built on it a little bit at a time. I probably edited those chapters at least a half a dozen times after writing them initially, moving pictures around, changing the format of some things. Um, but it was a it was a slow process initially to get it going. Um, mm. But the deadline was very firm, so it, it sped up a lot at the end. Uh, there was a lot of work that got done in the last two months. Well, to well, off. well. I noticed they uh, at least made you shave for the photos. Well, that seems to just depend on what I was looking like at the time. They they didn't really care because I have some, you know, some of those pictures are from articles that I'd written for Fine Woodworking. I started writing for Fine Woodworking in two thousand seven, mm-hmm. and some of the articles I've written for them are related to 
subjects in the book. So I had done an article on uh, the curved veneering. Part of the curved veneering chapter was from an article. So those are pictures that were taken 10, 11 years ago. So I look a lot younger in them as well. <laughs> um, all the recent ones, it just happened to depend on whether or not I had decided to shave or not. <laughs> So there's there's a beard that sort of comes and goes through the book. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> it's it's there sometimes. It's not there sometimes. I know. It, and actually, I think the pictures go through probably three different shops that I've been in. Um, I went through two shops with fine woodworking, and then this third one we haven't shot anything in yet, article wise. So all those pictures that I took are made in this new shop. Hmm. Or well, no, half of them are from the new shop. Half are from my previous shop. So I actually one nice thing about the flood was that I had about a month of downtime to really push on the writing kind of right at the end of the process. I had a couple months left and I had a month of time to really sit and focus on writing while nothing was happening in the shop because it was all it was all being cleaned and disinfected by the crew. Mm-hmm. Well, one so, question one question I want to ask you is about marketry. So I know you've done a lot of marketry pieces or at least, you know, a fair amount. Um, mm-hmm. You haven't done so much with the. I think mainly you've been doing these mechanical puzzle furniture things that don't have a lot of marquetry. But, um, well, what does that influence? I mean, is there is there stuff you're working on that's going to include some more marquetry or? Oh yeah, or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my interest in marquetry was initially spawned by seeing the work of Paul Schirsch. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Design and Wood Show here in San Diego. And then I studied with him in 2005 or six up at his shop in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And I also studied with Patrick Edwards here in town uh, and learned how to use a Chevrolet and then worked on a project of my own in his shop for a couple weeks after the class. Um, but my marquetry is definitely more in the Paul Schirsch style. It's floral. It's what I tend to kind of call a cartoonish representation of reality. The flowers look like flowers, but they're not to the realism level that like Silas Koff does in his marketry mm-hmm. where a single flower will have a hundred pieces in it. My flowers have five or six. Right. <laughs> um, but even the, even the puzzle pieces I've been doing do have marketry. The, the wisteria cabinet was from last year that's decorated in uh, wisteria flower marketry on three of the surfaces. And it kind of blends with a mix of inlay and marketry as it kind of wraps over the legs. Um, this next desk and some of the upcoming pieces I have will have, kind of a different style of marquetry for me there it's going to be a little more pictorial we're doing some sort of architectural marquetry kind oh, of okay. uh like uh, greek and roman ruins mm. very much like pieces that you've seen from that time period the the runken pieces and a variety of the other makers in that period use architectural marquetry mm-hmm. or parquetry um quite frequently so this piece will have some of that the client is interested in greek and roman architecture so we'll have you know, imagery in marquetry of, you know, ruins and things like that mixed into it. Most of that will be hidden inside the desk, so it'll be something that he'll discover. But a couple panels will be on the outside as well. Yeah, that's what I found interesting with um, a couple of uh, things that, that you've mentioned and I've uh, heard on some uh, other interviews you've done, is that, especially your puzzle pieces, a lot of that stuff is even hidden from the client. So the client wants to be able to take this piece and, and discover all the, uh, all the interesting, uh, functions, the puzzles, the, uh, hidden drawers or something on their own. Yeah. Most of them don't want to know anything about how it works. Um, and occasionally they don't even want to know what it looks like. I'm doing a puzzle box, which is unusual for me, a small scale piece for an 
a, essentially a YouTube magician. Um, mm-hmm. And it's ridiculously complicated for being as small as it is. But he's another one. He, he saw an outside, just quick model of the outside of the box. And he said, that's fine. That's what, let's just do that. And he doesn't want to know anything about how it works beyond that. And it's got, I don't know, I think we're 45 or 50 moves now to solve this particular box. A mix of drawers and hinge compartments and rotating parts. Um, but he, none of the puzzle people want to know how the pieces work. I do videos of the the function of the pieces primarily for myself for marketing, mm-hmm. um, but they none of them ever look at them. They're they're used mostly to show their friends. I think once they've solved the piece, they can send the video to their friends and show them the piece of furniture that they bought and entice them to come over and play with it. <laughs> but the majority of them really don't have much in the way of input in what goes into the piece. Like this big desk we're doing, the client knows the style based on the information we kind of did back and forth through some brainstorming sessions. But in terms of what it does, he'll have no idea when it shows up. I mean, no idea where to even start. And this is a big desk. It's an executive size desk, Mm -hmm. you know, seven feet by three feet. Um, It's got some architectural details on top as well. And, you know, I'll deliver it and set it up. And then he's on his own to sort of figure out how to open it. And it, it's going That's to take fantastic. him. Yeah, it's going to take him a while to figure out. It's complex enough that it's the kind mm-hmm. of thing that he probably will be working on on and off for several months to solve mm-hmm. before he hopefully eventually finds the final thing in it, which is exactly what he wants. He wants a piece he can just come and play with. You know, come home from work and play with for an hour, and you know, discover one new thing, and then the next day play with it a little more, and maybe he'll discover something else. Mm-hmm. But there'll be some compartments in there that you know he may not ever find. It just depends on how dedicated he is to solving this thing. Do you put wow. any like little um, notes or anything of that nature in these surprise compartments? Congratulations! Or- no, what what the I guess the puzzle collectors tend to like for pieces like this, they like yeah. um, coins. You know, oh, like a coins. maker coin, oh, essentially. Cool. So yeah. in the final compartment, there are there's a coin from me and a coin from the puzzle designer I work with, and that's kind of the indication that you found the last compartment. Um, but on this one, I think we're going to throw in a few more after that, just for you know future discovery, just mm-hmm. to give him something extra to play with one day in the future. He'll be playing with it and go, holy cow, I didn't even know that was there. Wow. You know, just to make it a little bit more interesting and a little bit more exciting for him. And mm-hmm. you know, he, He's paying a pretty good amount of money for this thing, so it, it's the kind of thing where I'll be able to work on it for an extended period of time and not have to feel rushed or like I have a deadline or like we're on the edge of the budget. There's no constraints on this one in that sense. So it's going to be a very enjoyable change from the past few years worth of work, which has been a lot of hard deadlines. Things need to get done at a certain time and they have to ship at a certain time. So, you know, however much time it takes to get it done is how long it takes and just mm-hmm. work the long hours and get it done. This, this piece will be a much more relaxed pace, which will be oh, hopefully very enjoyable. Exactly, exactly. Well, so the pacing doesn't bother you, you know, or I guess the tedium doesn't bother you, you know, enough to even though the pace wouldn't make a difference. I guess I'm not saying that right, but like, like some of those things seem so complex that you know you could get lost in the in the detail. Oh of, yeah. Of I mean, because I mean, how tight are your tolerances? Do you I mean, like feeler gauge? Wise, like. Yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're pretty snug. Like on this latest mechanical cabinet, there's some sh- little images and videos of it on Instagram. I didn't actually post nearly as much of it as I should have. There's less than a veneer thickness between the moving compartment and its outside case. Oh. 
twenty twenty five thousandths of an inch. Jeez. So then those those sliding compartments are coming in and out of the side of the cabinet and they're moving maybe 13, 14 inches out and then going back in and they're staying within that tolerance the entire time, not touching the side walls. So they, mm-hmm. they don't shimmy back and forth very much. They, they pop out automatically. So that, that piece has essentially four little buttons along the top and each button activates one mechanical movement. Um, two compartments, one on each side, come out automatically. They slide out and then a tray folds down and gives you access to some drawers and then a hinged lid pops up and each one of those is pretty tight in its tolerances i mean that that's kind of where i'm aiming is less than a veneer thickness so 20 25 thousandths gap around the perimeter of these compartments which is why they're all veneer yeah because there's no yeah. room for expansion i mean the compartments for this one has um electronic watch winders in one compartment and it's you know 14 inches high and about eight inches wide and the watch winder mechanism weighs about 15 pounds so as that slides out it's got 15 pounds of weight on the end of a cantilever kind of bouncing out there Mm. so to get that to stay within that tolerance going in and out of the compartment has taken some some engineering time (laughs) that's where that's where your mechanical engineering background you know some part of it has to pay something to that Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the tedium for me, I think it comes from pieces that have to be done for what I would call artificial deadlines, let's say. <laughs> client client set deadlines that don't need to exist yep. on what are extremely complicated pieces that haven't been done before. They they really don't need deadlines. They take as long as they take. You know, I I was messing with a, the hinge lid on this cabinet, and it took me three days to get it to open the way I wanted it to, and it was that was supposed to be the easiest part of the whole project. Mm. It's just it just hinges open, but it would hinge open too fast, or it would hinge open too slow, or get stuck halfway, or slam. So, you know, a, a series of thirty different springs mounted in different locations, and sort of a trial and error process. But it took three days to get it to open the way I wanted it to, and knowing the client has a deadline they keep pushing for at the end of that really makes it difficult to focus on the piece working the way I want it to work as opposed to getting there when they want it there. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, with something like that, do, do you require there be a, a lot of buffer in the schedule if you're making a complex piece like that, because it may take you three days to figure out a movement I do now. <laughs> yeah. Has that burned you in the past? No, not necessarily burned me, but like the um, the piece I did for this puzzle collecting tour in August, um, the one that spins around and drawers come, They as you spin, the entire cabinet spins around, and as it spins, drawers go in and out automatically. Mm. Um, and it's got a variety of puzzles and a little marquetry mixed in. That's the one with the image of the sort of golf course and marquetry on the, behind the door. Um, that one I had through my own fault, two months to build because it had to be done when the clients got here for this tour of puzzle collectors that were coming into town. And one of those people is the one that bought the desk. So it was worthwhile to put in the hours, but two months was having just started the design a very short period of time to be able to finish a piece that complex and actually make sure it was going to work. Typically now I've, I mean, that was only in August, so I can't say it's been a mm. long time. But now I'm I'm pushing my deadlines way out. And most of these projects that I'm taking on, they don't have deadlines. It'll be done when it's done. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other work ahead of it. It'll be done when I get to it, but it's going to be nine to 12 months minimum. Yeah. Don't ask for it before then. Now I'm curious about the mechanisms that do all this stuff. So how much of that is like off the shelf stuff that you can buy somewhere, my master car, or wherever versus uh, stuff that you actually have to have uh, uh, built, whether it's yourself building it or, or outsourcing that. It's kind of a mix. I would say the majority of it, primarily for cost, is off the shelf. Okay. Because it's much more expensive to have things yeah. machined than it is to buy them off the shelf. But mm. there's a mix of both in just about every piece. My goal, and, and maybe you can tell in the pieces and maybe you can't, but my goal has been to make each one of the mechanical pieces I do different functionally than the previous piece. They're different right. in style most of the time yeah. as well, but the idea is to to show, you know, this one goes up and down, this one comes in and out, this one rotates, the next one does something completely different. The The idea has been to kind of explore that every time. So there's there's some benefit to doing things over and knowing how something is going to work. But then when you do a different one the next time, you sort of lose that learning curve a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes for the mechanisms as well. It, it's a new mechanism, so does it have to be completely handmade? Is it something that we can buy off the shelf? And it's kind of an experiment with each piece. It, that's not information I know at the beginning of the project. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning of the project, we haven't even designed the piece. Right. You know, We know roughly what it's going to look like, and we start fleshing out the puzzles and the mechanisms inside. But to actually get them working takes quite a while over time and that's there's a lot of trial and error with hardware mcmaster car is my friend because (laughs) i can get stuff the same day they have no problem taking things back right you know if you if you don't break it they'll take it back apparently there's no limit to how long you can wait to send stuff back years you've tested that limit okay no i called them and asked them because i had an expensive component that i had Mm. kept for a couple months and the lady Mm. said it doesn't matter just send it back it doesn't matter how wow. long you've had it. Just send it back. Yeah, they are wow. a great company. Yeah, so I was wondering about that. So, you know, what, yeah, comes, so there's, what, what comes first? So you say, oh, this is a great puzzle. And then, okay, let's reverse engineer this. How are we going to actually make this puzzle work? Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, that is how it works. Like this, yeah. the one I'm working on now with the sliding compartments. I, I've mm-hmm. done different types of compartments that slide out of the side before. These were conceptually different because the weight distribution was so much different, especially the watch winders. You know, the the cabinet section where the drawer comes out is only about 20 inches deep, but the watch winders are 14 inches deep. So there's, you know, 14 inches of drawer outside of the cabinet and seven inches inside the cabinet. Mm -hmm. And all the weight is outside the cabinet. Mm -hmm. So it's totally different than some that I've done in the past, like the the drop front desk had a side opening compartment, but it only came out about seven inches and there was another 20 inches of drawer inside the cabinet still. So that took a totally different type of slide mechanism than this one, which is heavily cantilevered with a lot of weight hanging out in space. And that that's different every time. So it's, it's off the shelf hardware for that kind of stuff because there's no way to make slides that will handle that kind of loading for mm-hmm. the kind of money anybody would want to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the slides that are on that, they're $300 a pair. Yeah. And they're Ooh. inexpensive, honestly, compared mm-hmm. to some of the linear slides that I used on other pieces that were like $1,000 a pair. Wow. Um, so with each piece, it, it just depends on how precise the movement has to be, um, whether you 
do a combination of you know off the shelf slides, but then you have some shop made details like nylon glides or you know polyethylene glides to hold a drawer in place so it doesn't shift side to side as it's coming in and out. It's kind of a mix, if that makes sense. But anything yeah. basically with the ball bearing on it is definitely store bought. Okay. Uh, okay. But like the spinning cabinet, that's got that's got essentially um, machined aluminum cams inside with ball bearing followers that as the cabinet rotates around a central shaft, it just essentially with a cam moves the drawers in and out repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So you can spin the cabinet 360 degrees and just keep spinning it around and the drawers will go in and out all day long. Um, and that's kind of the same thing. It's a mix of handmade and store-bought. You know, the followers are store-bought, but the aluminum parts are all machined locally. And then there's bearings in there that are store-bought, but they go with machine fasteners. Well, with yeah. with with all that said, um, tell us what kind of machinery you actually have in your shop, because I think that's going to be a dichotomy for a lot of folks out there. Oh, yeah. I have very basic machinery for, yeah. for the most part, to be honest <laughs> with you. I have, you know, my planer is a DeWalt benchtop planer. I've got a little 8-inch old uh, Powermatic joiner. It's got a spiral cutter head in it, so that's a bonus. Yeah. But um, Delta Unisaw, they're, they're somewhat basic machines. The only things that I have that are bigger, I do have a um, eight and a half foot sliding table saw. I've got, you know, pretty good edge sander now, things like that. But mm-hmm. the majority of my machinery is fairly small, and a lot of it's kind of sort of mix of shop made. Um, my vacuum table—it's a flip-top vacuum press, but it's shop made vacuum press. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I think you've got, got a, a picture of that in your in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I yeah well, so. you have a picture of the what ten thousand dollar version of it, and then you got a picture That's, of what you use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one I'd like to have, and then I have mine, mm-hmm. which is you know a day in the shop, and it looks like yeah. it's it looks about as uh, hacked together as it could, but it works fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you know that that's the the difference though is the the ten thousand dollar one wouldn't do anything new, it it wouldn't add anything to the work. It does the same job, yeah, as shop made one. Um, but I've got some shop tools that I've sort of modified to work the way I wanted. I I do a lot of chairs, dining chairs, and things like that with curves in them. Um, so I've modified an edge sander to do some curved work. Um, you know, I've kind of hacked on my grizzly bandsaw and added a sanding disc to the back, a 20 inch sanding disc on the back of it. I've kind of made do with what I had, but I haven't really, let's say upgraded my tools since going from hobby to professional. The only big tool I've really added is the table saw and maybe the edge sander, mm-hmm. but everything else is the same stuff I was using when I had my first shop almost. I mean, I started with like most people, some Harbor Freight table saw, things like that. But when I mm. kind of upgraded that, I haven't upgraded a second time. You yeah. know, the Unisaw was the upgrade from the Harbor Freight table saw, and I've never gone anywhere since then. I still have the Unisaw. It still works great. So it's hard to justify trading it in for something else. As much as I'd love to have, you know, a shop filled with Martin or Felder machinery, right. the 50 grand it would cost to do it wouldn't it wouldn't really pay off to be honest mm-hmm. with you because you know we were looking at this for you know i've been looking at getting a uh saw stop for a little while and i bought one used and then ended up reselling it and the only benefit to that obviously it's a safety feature it's a better right. saw but beyond the safety feature it still does the same job as the unisaw right if it wasn't for the safety feature there's no reason to change from a unisaw to a saw stop in my opinion 
it's a, it's definitely a nicer saw, but it does the exact same job. Right, right. Yeah, and I I think that's a that's important. So for for our listeners, go to ctfunfurniture.com and look at the work he's doing and it's it's just strictly amazing work out there and uh your portfolio actually your website is actually fantastic uh i like the animation animation that pops up showing some of these puzzle uh furniture pieces that you've done and uh i encourage people to go out there and then go to his instagram feed and look at some of his shop photos (laughs) yeah and you're going why can i do this I mean that's that's really what it is. It's not necessarily about the tools. You it's could about, spend a hundred grand on tools, yeah. But if you don't have the skills to use them, it doesn't really matter. You could spend a thousand dollars on tools and get the same work done. Exactly. Um, you know, and you see that with a lot of the guys that have been doing this for a long time. They, there's no reason yeah. to upgrade the tools. The old ones still work just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a way to spend money, basically. Right. Um, right. But. You know, everybody likes new tools. There's no, there's nothing wrong with new tools. If you've got the budget for it, you know, or if you're a doctor during the daytime and you have a, a nice two-car garage filled with beautiful tools, if it encourages you to go out there and use them, then that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely, but, definitely. But uh, Yeah, people are always surprised that I still have a little 12-inch lunchbox planer, and I've been using that for 10 years. I think I've replaced it once along the way, but with the exact same planer. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't have a bunch of big stationary yeah. equipment tables. The sliding table saw is the big piece and that's kind of the center of the shop. But mm-hmm. beyond that, everything else, it's just, you know, hobby ish woodworker quality equipment, not out of the realm of anybody that's got a little bit of money to spend on equipment. Right. And I think that in the come full circle, I think that's what's, what's great about your book is basically all the projects in there are immediately accessible regardless of your skill level and even if uh you go from the basic to advanced i mean the the mission that there there's no special machinery required basically uh if you want to get into vacuum press that's an option but you you have quite a you have quite of a, a budget option for a vacuum press if you want to do it that way yeah oh yeah vacuum yeah. bag and a you yeah. know a refurbished pump for 15 bucks and you're ready to go it, it doesn't right. take many tools to do veneering it takes more skill than it does tools mm-hmm. you just need a veneer saw on a straight edge really and and that's pretty much it and a bunch of tape a lots and lots of rolls oh. of tape <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. beyond that it, it it's just the practice of cutting straight taping yeah. correctly you know, learning how to make packets for marketry, stuff like that. It's just practice, yeah. practice, practice. Well, you know, I've all, like I said earlier, I've only done one veneer piece, and I bought the gum tape. And I read your book and went, I could have just used blue tape. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with gum tape. It's it not. Just takes it's longer. not. And, and I got it for my future... Um, you know, parquetry is what I really would like to get into. I think that's just amazing stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I got the patience for marquetry, but parquetry looks interesting. But well, that's maybe not more tedious some, some times. Yeah, I could see where that could get more tedious than marquetry. So. Yeah, parquetry can be fussy in its own yeah. way when it comes to doing things yeah. like diamonds and you want all the points to line up. Or yeah. you want to make a specifically sized panel of diamonds. That that becomes quite challenging, and that was actually the first parquetry project I did was to make a cabinet with four panels of diamonds that had to be exactly the right size to fit in the openings. 
and the points had to line up exactly where they were supposed to. And there, there's some head scratching that goes along with that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But hey, I think it's something I should definitely try. And uh, I think your book gives me enough ammunition to uh, to definitely uh, uh, challenge uh, myself to do that. So it's easy to get started, whether you're doing parquetry or you know a single veneer layup it's it's easy to get started you just have to go out and get a piece of veneer and it's all you need yeah <laughs> and my for book. me for me it's always intimidated the hell out of me but honestly after seeing your book it 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 it's that much more approachable and it is just what you said i mean you you you'll learn to cut a straight line be able to match things up as as you need you know glue tape yeah it it is actually fairly simple and it's in it you know as it goes but yep. uh, I mean, ac- excellent, excellent production in that in that book to to ease a mind like mine with a mechanical background. I do. Well, I st- I still work in mechanical engineering. So. Oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's the kind of thing that just doesn't take a lot of tools. It doesn't take a lot of time. It just takes practice. And I mean that obviously that equates to time. But beyond that, it's not you know, you're not hand carving some very complicated thing to make a veneered panel. It's not the same as doing a ball and claw foot. Mm-hmm. It, it's easy to do in comparison. Even if you're doing, you know, a book match or a four-way book match or work, it, it's still relatively easy woodworking compared to some of the other woodworking that's out there. Mm-hmm. I'd rather do veneering than hand cut dovetails, personally. Um, other people might feel differently about that, but my preference would be to go veneer every time because it's something I know how to do and hand cutting dovetails. It's still a struggle. Yeah. I'm still <laughs> hoping one day. <laughs> well, I definitely understand that, but, uh, man, um, but with that, uh, let's, uh, let's move on to our fortnightly beer choices. So, uh, let's do it. uh, Craig, this is the, Part of the show where we uh, give a little uh, salutation to the beer we're enjoying or have enjoyed in the past. So I guess I'll kick this off. And I am drinking uh, Albert's Brewery. It's a Austin, Texas brewery, of course, because I stay in Texas. And it's called the Philosophy. Ah, easy for me to say. Philosophizer beer. And it's a Sassoon Ale. And uh, it's brewed with spices. And the uh, tagline is Sip and Ponder. Um, It's a great beer, uh, actually. Uh, I've had it many times before. And um, anyway, that's what I'm drinking. What about you, Sean? So I uh, took a recommendation of yours from a couple uh, weeks back. And I I finally found some Shiner Cheer. Oh, what do you think of that? That or holiday cheer, I guess. Mm-hmm. That it's really good. Yes, yes, it is. It's uh, it's it's kind of bright, a, mm-hmm. a little fruity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is that's good. I'm gonna have to get a sixer and take it to Christmas. Uh, actually, I got a uh, probably about a six pack, maybe eight pack, uh, cooling in my fridge right now. Oh wow, yeah. very very nice. I I could I mean it's. It went, goes down exceptionally easy. Yeah, it's a so, great uh, it's a great holiday beer, and it sells out so quick too, especially in this area. Just yeah, oh, does it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So uh, there's people that actually stock up on that stuff. So you know they'll bring it out in July and say, "Hey, <laughs> got some of this still left." Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. 
So, Craig, um, do you have any uh, beer or alcoholic or non-alcoholic choices for our listeners I'm, tonight? I'm drinking uh, Captain Morgan spiced rum at the moment. So, mm-hmm. hey, straight or mixed with a uh, uh, no, mixed with a little orange juice and some uh, sparkling mineral water makes for uh, kind of a nice, yeah, sort of refreshing, sort of Christmassy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Gave up on beer a couple months ago, so you know. It's very yeah. sad. Oh, no. That's <laughs> probably a smart decision. Well, I don't know if replacing it with rum was the correct decision. <laughs> well, but, yeah, I let's mean, go from beer no. to hard alcohol. Yeah. It's hard to drink as much rum as I was drinking in beer. Let's put it that way. There so. you go. And uh, calorically, you're doing better. Uh, pure yeah. volumetric consumption, you're doing better. I mean, see? You're... Well, that's why the orange juice is in there. It's actually, you know, it's, I can say it's good for me now. It's so. good for you. Vitamin C and stuff. That's right. <laughs> Whatever it takes to justify our little habits, you know. Exactly. Absolutely. So, so are you primarily a rum drinker? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much? Mostly, mostly over the holidays. It's just nice to come home and relax mm. and do all the computer work and let the brain relax a little bit. Yeah, I, ju- I just discovered uh, today that uh, Galveston Island uh, just opened a distillery on the uh, seawall, so... I don't oh, know wow. exactly what they are, uh, what they have, but uh, it should be interesting. I think yeah, uh, distilleries yeah. are going to be as popular as uh, craft beers here in the next few years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one surprising thing about where my new shop is in El Cajon. There's almost nothing in terms of breweries or little pubs or anything around there, which is actually kind of nice compared yeah. to where I was in Little Italy. There were, I think, a half a dozen little beer places and breweries within three blocks of the shop. So it was too easy to walk away from work and relax for a little while. I can't remember in Little Italy. I had some of the best pizza I've had in my life, but I remember we, uh, my wife and I, we went to Little Italy. I was there on a conference for work, probably around 2000, I want to say five or six. And we went into Little Italy and we said, Ask a you know local because they were walking dogs, so I figured they were local. I'll go. Where should we eat? And they said, right there. And I looked <laughs> over there, and there was a line out the door. And I went, "Yep, that's the place." But, oh, that's mm-hmm. probably Felipe's. Yes, yes, that's yep. it, Felipe's. Because there's yep. always a line out the door at yep. Felipe's. Yeah, but uh, they have fantastic pizza there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Little Italy is probably three or four times as crowded as it was when you were there. Then. Oh, I'm in sure terms it is, of the number yeah. of people and the number of restaurants and what wine bars and breweries, gaslight area is that? I assume that it's still busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a couple miles into downtown from there, but it's still packed at night. It's it's more of a party atmosphere at night than Little Italy. It, mm-hmm. Little Italy is more, um, you know, a little more, I guess, upscale dining. I guess more yeah. so than just you know getting mm-hmm. drunk. Hmm. Well, you can you could certainly do it there too. But it, yeah. it's less of a party atmosphere, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure uh, Filippo's is Flip. Did I say that right? Filippo's? Filippi's. Yeah. Filippi's. I assume they're still ongoing concern. Oh, yeah. They're still there. Yeah. Because yep. it looked like they'd been there for like a hundred years when I was there. Forever. So. Yeah. I think they're going to be there forever, too. Okay. So that's a pizza recommendation. On the, uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Pizza, we got beer. Yeah. Did we when talk you're about in San Diego. <laughs> I look I, at some point in my life. I'll have to get to California, and I I'll have to now. I've got some place to go look for. Right? Yeah. We'll stop by when you're in town. Absolutely. 
Exactly. Be awesome. Well, um, be- before we close everything out, let's uh, give you a chance to pimp anything else you would like to pimp, including where people can find you at. Okay. Um, most of the time, it's either going to be through my website, ctfinefurniture.com, or Instagram. Was That's the place I really do most of the posting now, and that's also ctfinefurniture.com. It's very simple. Um, if you do go to my website, that fancy video banner you mentioned at the top also has a link to buying books that I'm selling, signed books that I'm selling personally. The next best place is Amazon has just a boatload of them for almost the same price that I buy them for. Mm. <laughs> I, I really don't know how they do it, but volume, think, volume, volume, right? Yeah. I think I, I buy mine wholesale from, from the publisher and I think I pay $2 less than you can buy it at Amazon. Wow. So I don't know how they're making money on it, but I, I mean, I guess volume, but they must be buying for a different price than I am. Yeah. Must be. That's the that whole volume thing. But do you get any uh, residuals off of being sold on Amazon? Yeah. Oh okay. yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. There's, there's royalties yeah. that go along with the book. They're just uh, lower on Amazon and any oh. other the yeah. heavy so discount. Fig- so yeah, figure that out because yeah. not only are you buying it for just a little bit less than what they're or a little bit more than what they're selling it for, however that went, but they're also giving you money back from what their price is. Oh, I'm not getting residuals from Amazon. Oh, oh from, from the, the from the publisher. publisher. Okay, but even no, still, even the there's publisher money in is. Yeah, the publisher is selling it to Amazon for less, and then I'm getting a cut of what they're selling it for. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm. in terms of making money on selling books, I certainly make more selling the signed books through my website because I pay wholesale, and then I'm I'm just charging the retail price for them plus shipping, um, which is nice. And it's mostly for people that I know that you know have seen my work and just want a book. I sent one to a client uh, just today, actually, that has a couple of my pieces, but is also a woodworker. Uh, his wife bought it for him. So it's nice to have the option of being able to personalize a book if somebody wants a signed copy. Yeah. So support Craig and go to CT Fine Furniture and get a signed copy. There we go. They'll all be gone tomorrow. (laughs) There you go. Or whenever this posts. Well, it'll post. (laughs) Hopefully it'll post this Saturday. So maybe by Monday they'll all be gone. Awesome. There you go. All asking for Christmas delivery. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Sean, where can people find you? So you can find my outdated blog at the Corner Workshop um, or me at – I'm at SeanW78 on most uh, every social media except Facebook where I'm Sean Wisniewski. Spell it however you want. You'll probably find me. How about you, Kyle? Well, I'm on uh, Instagram at Barton.Kyle and since Diami is not joining us tonight, it <laughs> is the only social media platform that matters. It's where <laughs> all the kids are. That's right. There you go. Well, with that, that just about wraps up the show. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play Music. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. Our podcast will be found there. Then when you subscribe, you'll never miss one of these great episodes. And thank you for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. And if you like the show, please sure to visit us at modernwoodworkersassociation.com. You can follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national, on Instagram at MWA podcast, or like us at MWA on Facebook. And the best thing you can always do is tell a friend about the podcast. Word of mouth goes a long way. So thanks again, Craig, for coming on this uh, show with us. And uh, so uh, everyone, get out there, 
get a book about veneering and find a way to work it into your work. Do good things. It was a real pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank and you. thanks for having me on the show, too. Thank you.